Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to the third episode of Coffee After Credits. I hope you all enjoyed the holidays and spent some time with your loved ones. 2018 had some truly wonderful films, and I hope you're spending a little time catching up on some of the year's great releases. Before we get into our topic, allow me to give a brief update on the podcast release schedule. My professional fortune has taken an upswing quite recently, and I have had a wonderful job opportunity come my way. However, my work hours will make Wednesday releases very difficult, so I have decided to shift releases to Friday mornings with the same estimated time of 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Uh, This might actually be better for you, the listeners, since episodes will release closer to weekends, which might be conducive to finding time for screenings. It's a simple shift, and the website listing of upcoming episodes also reflects the new release dates accordingly. That's the only minor change. The ship is still on course. Now, without further ado, let's dive right into this, because this is a film near and dear to my heart, as it is for many other film lovers. Directed and produced by Stanley Kubrick, screenplay by Stanley Kubrick, Terry Southern, and Peter George, based on the novel Red Alert by Peter George, starring Peter Sellers as Group Captain Lionel Mandrake, President Merkin Muffley, and Dr. Strangelove, George C. Scott as General Buck Turgidson, Sterling Hayden as Brigadier General Jack D. Ripper, Slim Pickens as Major T.J. King Khan, Keenan Wynn as Colonel Bat Guano, Peter Bull as Soviet Ambassador Alexei Desadesky, and James Earl Jones in his film debut as Lieutenant Lothar Zog. It's the 1964 political satire black comedy Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. This is Coffee After Credits. You gotta let that lousy commie punk vomit all over us like this. Mr. President? We haven't been able to reach Premier Kissoff on the Kremlin. They say they don't know where he is and won't be back for another two hours. Hmm. Try B-86543 Moscow. Yes, sir. You would never have found him through his office, Mr. President. Our Premier is a man of the people, but he's also a man, if you follow my meaning. <laughs> what did you say? I said Premier Kissoff is a degenerate atheist. Mr. Mr. President, I formally request you to have his ignorant... I'm sorry, Mr. President. I think they're trying the number. Poeta Cinema, Part 3 I first viewed this film with my brother several years ago, and we both absolutely fell in love with it upon this initial viewing. Despite the dark subject matter, We found ourselves laughing persistently. Its eclectic characters are simply captivating and surprisingly believable, despite their utterly ridiculous nature. I really don't know if a film will ever be able to replicate the unique tone, voice, and message of this one. So, let's dissect it 
And in order to do so, let me take you back. The United States, January 1964. The Cold War dominates the mindshare of the American population. The greatest threat to democracy and freedom is the communist behemoth. Only 10 years earlier, Senator Joseph McCarthy, who facilitated a witch hunt for communist sympathizers, was officially censured by the Senate. Unfortunately, the damage of paranoia had already been instilled. The public couldn't trust itself. In the era of McCarthyism, neighbors scrutinized neighbors scrutinized each other with suspicion of having socialist ideologies or possibly even being Soviet spies. The Cuban Missile Crisis had recently been averted. President John F. Kennedy had been assassinated just two months prior. For over a decade, schools and businesses educated the public on personal protection against nuclear strikes through methods and drills known as duck and cover. Here's a short clip from a U.S. civil defense film from 1951. That's why these children are practicing to duck and cover just as you do in your school. We all know the atomic bomb is very dangerous. Since it may be used against us, we must get ready for it, just as we are ready for many other dangers that are around us all the time. Now, we must be ready for a new danger, the atomic bomb. First, you have to know what happens when an atomic bomb explodes. You will know when it comes. We hope it never comes, but we must get ready. It looks something like this. There is a bright flash, brighter than the sun, brighter than anything you've ever seen. If you are not ready and did not know what to do, it could hurt you in different ways. It could knock you down hard or throw you against a tree or a wall. It is such a big explosion, it can smash in buildings and knock signboards over and break windows all over town. But if you duck and cover, you will be much safer. You know how bad sunburn can feel. The atomic bomb flash could burn you worse than a terrible sunburn, especially where you're not covered. Imagine being a child going to elementary school and facing the grim reality that the survival of the entire human race was constantly under nuclear threat and could be brought to a swift end in only a few brief moments. Imagine being a young adult with social and cultural expectations placed on you to push for a successful future when there might not even be a future to strive for. Imagine being a parent who tucks in their kids at night without the ability to confidently reassure them that they will wake up safely in the morning. American society was desperately looking for a release from manic anxieties and crippling paranoia. With the past decade plagued by fear, you, an American citizen, go to your local movie theater to see a film strangely titled Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, a film that opens with two military aircraft having sex with each other. Don't believe me? Go back and watch the first two minutes again and pay special attention to the imagery and music. It's highly suggestive, especially for the 60s, and clearly sets you up for the type of story 
you're in for. Everything about this narrative seems absurd. And you know what? It is. But what's truly shocking is how close it skirts reality, even more than you would probably think. This film is based on the novel Red Alert by Peter George, but Stanley Kubrick had a fascinating philosophy on how to convey the intended message of the story. In his opinion, the novel's somber criticality wasn't nearly as effective on film for this grave subject matter as satirical black comedy, so he ran a country mile with the latter. The contrast of absurd satire and ominous prognostication produces a distinct tenor to which the American people had yet to be exposed. This completely dissimilar approach to the narrative makes Dr. Strangelove not only one of the most fascinating pieces of satire in cinema, but also one of the most curious adaptations to ever grace screens. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed, Dimitri, and remember, there's just one thing. We are all in this together. We're right behind you, Dimitri. We're with you all the way. Yes, well, we'll keep the line open. All right, Dimitri. General Turgidson, is there really a chance for that plane to get through? Mr. President, if I may speak freely. The Rusky talks big, but frankly, we think he's short of know-how. I mean... You just can't expect a bunch of ignorant peons to understand a machine like some of our boys. And that's not meant as an insult, Mr. Ambassador. I mean, you, you take your average Rusky, we all know how much guts he's got. Hell, look at, look at all of them, them Nazis killed off and they still wouldn't quit. Can't you stick to the point, General? Well, uh, sir, uh, if the pilot's good, see, I mean, I mean, if he's really sharp, he can barrel that baby in so low. I mean, <laughs> you ought to see it sometime. It's a sight you. A big plane like a 52. Vroom! This jet exhaust frying chickens in the barnyard. <laughs> yeah, but has he got a chance? Has he got a chance? <laughs> yeah, well, you, you... Kubrick casted Peter Sellers as three of the film's leads. The proper gentleman, Captain Mandrake, the sensible voice of reason, President Muffley, and the unnervingly peculiar Dr. Strangelove. Sellers was more than enthusiastic for the challenge, but his casting cost over half of the film's entire budget. The character of Turgidson required an actor whose theatrical presence could match that of Sellers' incredibly dynamic talent, and so Kubrick casted the gruffly assertive George C. Scott fittingly. While Kubrick pushed for Scott to overact for his character, which initially upset Scott, Sellers was allowed to improvise a great deal of his dialogue. For example, Sellers completely improvised the entire phone conversation between President Muffley and the Soviet Premier. Kubrick is also said to have read nearly 50 books, about nuclear war in preparation for tackling this story. Special attention was given to Rand Corporation military strategist Herman Kahn's controversial book on thermonuclear war, with its grim warnings of nuclear instability and blunt doubts of deterrent effectiveness. Plot devices within the film are even inspired by factual and conceptual counterparts. The Doomsday Machine 
is in fact modeled after a real-life concept proposed by Manhattan Project scientist John von Neumann, known as Mutual Assured Destruction, which fittingly results in the appropriate acronym MAD. To reiterate the definition loosely provided by the character of Dr. Strangelove, Mutual Assured Destruction is the principle that the comprehensive launch of nuclear arsenals by two opposing factions would consequently result in the catastrophic annihilation of both powers. To circumvent this outcome, one might consider the possibility of a preemptive nuclear strike, which is intended to cripple most of an opposing force's nuclear arsenal before they have the chance to retaliate, so that casualties on the home front are reduced substantially. However, in the age of computers... The doomsday machine almost entirely negates the effectiveness of a preemptive strike. This device, which was actually proposed by real scientists, including Leo Szilard, is a massive cobalt stockpile designed to explode if the country in which it was constructed is attacked by a nuclear strike. This explosion would produce a cobalt radioactive shroud that would devastate the world. With these sweeping fallout effects in mind, neither side would have any reason to attack the opposing side. Mr. President, the technology required is easily within the means of even the smallest nuclear power. It requires only the will to do so. But how is it possible for this thing to be triggered automatically and at the same time impossible to untrigger? Mr. President, it is not only possible, it is essential. That is the whole idea of this machine, you know. Deterrence is the art of producing in the mind of the enemy the fear to attack. And so because of the automated and irrevocable decision-making process which rules out human meddling, the doomsday machine is terrifying. It's, it's simple to understand and completely credible and convincing. Gee, I wish we had one of them doomsday machines, Dainty. Interestingly enough, the doomsday machine within the film is activated by what is known in reality as a dead hand mechanism. During the Cold War, both the United States and the Soviet Union maintained systems that were designed to automatically communicate launch orders for nuclear payloads in case of a nuclear strike by the enemy force and used sensors to detect seismic, light, and radioactivity caused by these strikes. The American device was known as the Emergency Rocket Communication System, or ERCS, while the Russian device is known as Dead Hand, or perimeter. The ERCS was officially decommissioned in 1991, yet Dead Hand is said to still be in operation to this day. When Dr. Strangelove explains that the production of such a machine is quite cheap and simple, he means it. The ERCS only cost the United States $7 million, which amounts to a minuscule blip in military budgeting, even for 1964. Luckily, 
the idea of a doomsday machine designed around a cobalt stockpile, as is used in the film, was only a proposed concept in reality. In the film, the doomsday machine turns out to fail as a deterrent as a result of a rogue general. This man is obviously a psychotic. I'd I'd hold off judgment on a thing like that, sir, until all the facts are in. And incompetent policymakers. The whole point of the doomsday machine is lost. If you keep it a secret, why didn't you tell the world, eh? It was to be announced at the party congress on Monday. As you know, the premier loves surprises. Instead, it seems more like a device designed around the childish premise of if we can't win, nobody can win. Even after saying all of this out loud and mulling over the content of this episode, I must say it all still sounds so absurd. Actual systems were designed that placed the survival of the human race on a tightrope, one of which is still technically in place, although the potential nuclear catastrophe that threatens us today is much different than it was throughout the Cold War. The nuclear powers of the modern geopolitical landscape are aware that if a nuclear strike was ordered on an opposing nation, international retaliation would be overwhelmingly hostile. There is an inherent deterrent in place, and that is the world order. We face the threat of radical terrorists gaining nuclear capabilities. As advanced technology becomes rapidly more accessible, that threat increases as each day passes and is far removed from humorous. But that threat is an isolated strike. Think about what life was like in the Atomic Age, in the Cold War. You might have heard older relatives talk about the fear that swept the nation. Imagine living every single day knowing there was a chance that your life, as well as everything you know and love, might be entirely obliterated in a matter of seconds at any point, day or night. Dr. Strangelove released just over a year after the Cuban Missile Crisis, the historical event during which this fear was at its highest peak, and its release was delayed by a couple of months due to the assassination of JFK. It was determined the public was in no mood for such a film. The implementation of fallout shelters, or mine shafts, as are suggested in the film, to preserve human life from nuclear assault, essentially negates the mad doctrine. What's the point of having mutual assured destruction as a deterrent if people are intended to survive the initial destruction? Those survivors then have the opportunity to retaliate. It doesn't make any sense. Where are these ideas coming from? Well, from the very top, of course. An unofficial study which we undertook of this eventuality indicated that we would destroy 90% of their nuclear capabilities. We would therefore prevail and suffer only modest and acceptable civilian casualties from the remaining force, which would be badly damaged and uncoordinated. General, it is the avowed policy of our country never to strike first with nuclear weapons. Well, 
Mr. President, I would, I would say that General Ripper has already invalidated that policy. <laughs> that was not an act of national policy, and there are still alternatives left open to us. Mr. President, we are rapidly approaching a moment of truth, both for ourselves as human beings and for the life of our nation. Now, truth is not always a pleasant thing. But it is necessary now to make a choice, to choose between two admittedly regrettable, but nevertheless distinguishable post-war environments. One where you got 20 million people killed, and the other where you got 150 million people killed. You're talking about mass murder, General, not war. Mr. President, I'm not saying we wouldn't get our hair mussed, but I do say no more than 10 to 20 million killed, tops, uh, depending on the breaks. As we shift the conversation to the war room, we can take some time to talk about the language of film. We'll start with a simple question. Is the war room an accurate depiction of what the American war room would really look like? Does it really feature a dramatically lit cyclical table? The answer is no, but whether it genuinely exists is irrelevant because it makes sense to this particular story. Absolutely nothing of any significance is actually accomplished in the war room at any point in the narrative. The table itself mirrors the nature of the sitting members in the war room, who constantly wind up back at a starting point with no plan of action whatsoever. When the members deliberate, their own convoluted policies get in the way of administrative action. General Turgidson's briefing of President Muffley is basically a 15-minute cyclical conversation. Muffley says, Why is this so? Turgidson says, uh, This is why, sir. Why haven't you done anything about it? Oh, well, this convoluted reason is why, sir. Oh, we should take action immediately. I'm sorry, sir. I'm, I'm afraid that's not possible. Well, why is that not possible? Well, uh, because our protocol mandates it in case of da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And let's talk about General Turgidson. George C. Scott's performance is so boisterously husky and commanding that he often feels like the star of the film. A small detail that speaks volumes about this paranoid general is that he reads statistics and intel from a binder labeled World Targets and Megadeaths. To help put this in perspective, a megadeath is a real unit of measurement coined by nuclear prognosticators that amounts to one million human deaths, generally used in the context of forecasting a nuclear catastrophe. It's amusingly unsettling that the official intelligence calculating the utter devastation of human life is reduced to a fairly thin binder. After a heated exchange with Muffley, Turgidson takes a phone call from his secretary-slash-mistress, and if you watch his physical expressions when he hangs up the phone, you'll notice he quickly snaps to a cowed state, hoping Muffley's attention was elsewhere, like a schoolboy passing a vulgar note in a classroom. These are boys in a room playing with the fate of humanity, like it's some sort of twisted game. The only sensible one in the room is the precautious President Muffley, and even he starts to buckle under pressure. He stammers, sweats, and chokes up. But who could really blame him when hundreds of megadeaths are at stake? Only about five of the sitting members in the war room actually speak. 
Comically, the rest serve no real functional purpose to the narrative and contribute nothing to averting nuclear catastrophe. They stoically glance around the room at whoever's speaking while nursing cigarettes and cigars. And that's the point. The behavior of the war room members almost makes you think they deserve to have the bomb strike. And that's exactly what ends up happening. After fixing the bomb doors, Major Kong rides the warhead in reverse. And I don't think this was simply for an interesting shot. While he takes the ride of his life, it also captures the backwards ride on which this film takes the viewer. For me, very few scenes in cinema are as cathartic as slim pickens waving a cowboy hat and shouting exuberantly while straddling a nuclear warhead that plummets to sweeping human obliteration. But let's single out the individual who thrust the balance of life on Earth into chaos. I can no longer sit back and allow communist infiltration, communist indoctrination, communist subversion, and the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify all of our precious bodily fluids. General Jack D. Ripper uses war as a conduit for his male sexual frustration. His epiphany of the supposed Russian conspiracy to pollute the entire American national water supply happened to occur when he felt tired after sex. I mean, he couldn't possibly be losing his libido, a grizzled, decorated, authoritative man of stature such as himself. That couldn't possibly be the case. Yet we know, of course, it's exactly the case. With most of these characters, it generally comes down to ego and the perpetuation of male competitiveness. Just look at how the war room meanders about its bureaucratic disarray. Apparently, the 23rd Airborne Division is stationed seven miles away at uh, Alvarado. General Faceman, I want them to enter the base, locate General Ripper, and put him in immediate telephone contact with me. Yes, sir. Mr. President, if I may advise, under a condition read, it is standard procedure that the base be sealed off and the base defended by base security troops. Any force trying to enter there would certainly encounter very heavy casualties. General Turgeson, with all due respect for your uh, defense team, my boys can brush him aside without too much trouble. General Ripper is a pathetic man of power who persistently wields a large cigar to visually compensate for his dwindling, well, shall we say, potency. By holding Captain Mandrake hostage, Ripper holds the entire world hostage. When his men's, when his men surrender on their own accord... His confidence is crushed, not because his men yielded, but because he knows he will be unable to endure torture when the armed forces try to pry the three-letter CRM code from him. So he shoots himself. Sellers, who also played the role of Mandrake, effectively captures the panic his character likely experienced following that gunshot. 
After finding the code on Ripper's desk, Mandrake desperately relays it to the Pentagon via payphone while talking down the friendly yet not-so-friendly forces. For a brief moment, the fate of the human race seems to depend on whether a character is willing to damage a vending machine. Colonel, that Coca-Cola machine, I want you to shoot the lock off it. There may be some change in there. That's private property. Colonel, can you possibly imagine what is going to happen to you, your frame, outlook, way of life and everything, when they learn that you have obstructed a telephone call to the President of the United States? Can you imagine? Shoot it off! Shoot with a gun! That's what the bullets are for, you twit! Okay. I'm going to get your money for you. But if you don't get the President of the United States on that phone, you know what's going to happen to you? What? You're going to have to answer to the Coca-Cola company. Sacred Capitalism Dr. Strangelove states, Deterrence is the art of producing in the mind of the enemy the fear to attack. But this fear was so rapid that nations were willing to turn their own guns on themselves, if absolutely necessary, in order to avoid mutual assured apocalyptic destruction. While there was never an instance that required these nations to do so in reality, the war room makes the decision to shoot down its own bomber, even though its pilots and technicians are innocent and only following their given orders. Dr. Strangelove is a character who surfaces an underlying dormant threat to humanity throughout the Cold War. In the post-World War II geopolitical landscape, the United States and the Soviet Union locked into a defensive and offensive race of massive proportions. But if both powers actually reached the point of broad nuclear retaliation, which would cripple both societies and possibly every society, who knows what type of society would move into power? How would the world order look 50 years a hundred years into the future, mine shafts or no mine shafts. Strangelove is clearly the embodiment of the ideological remnants of Nazi Germany. Countless Austrian-Hungarian-German scientists were recruited after the Second World War to assist in weapons development. Ironic how, after winning what we deem as the last just war, the world's two superpowers take the scientific power of the fallen evil regime and weaponize it to advance their own respective superiority. Strangelove suffers from what is known as alien hand syndrome, which is when limbs seem to act autonomously. His hand mannerisms emulate the fascist Nazi order from its regular rigidity to its outbursts of the Siegheil salute. Strangelove's fascination with extermination and obsession with hitting the full restart button on humanity makes the viewer question his motives. With his Nazi roots, you wonder whether he himself would take advantage of the fragile state of humanity in the mineshaft societies. He does say, with an unsettling ravenousness about his face, that these survivors would be imparted with Quote, 
the required principles of leadership and tradition. But to what and whose principles of leadership and traditions is he referring exactly? I think we all suspect they're stamped with a swastika. The vulnerability of humankind, quite literally rising from the ashes, inherently creates an environment in which a new power struggle for control over the emerging society is a possibility and maybe even likely. I don't know about you, but I certainly would not trust Strangelove in that bunker. You mean people could actually stay down there for a hundred years? It would not be difficult, my Fuhrer. Nuclear reactors could... (laughs) I'm sorry, Mr. President. Nuclear reactors could provide power almost indefinitely. Greenhouses could maintain plant life. Animals could be bred and slaughtered. The way the camera frames our central characters speaks to their personalities, egos, and sanity. General Ripper and Dr. Strangelove are the only two characters given the rare close-up, and purposely so. Ripper's visual presence is commanding, imposing, and egoistic, while Strangelove's manic expression and wide eyes hint at his insanity. For President Muffley, the camera is always at eye level with him to match his mostly composed rationale. But for General Turgidson, it's canted upward to emphasize his military authority, yet not as much as in the case of Ripper. Beyond the characters, the way space is manipulated to frame individuals and action is brilliant. While everything is marked by absurdity, Everything bears a strange authenticity, because effective satire always bears a level of truth. Overhanging shots of the war room emphasize how these small people around this table wield immense power, often irresponsibly so. When the U.S. Army battles itself outside Ripper's compound, it's shot at handheld camera angles, as if it were documentary footage layering an illusion of reality on a ludicrous scenario. The film is about the battle between rationality and madness, and an interesting aspect of the narrative's resolution is that it doesn't exactly present any messages on how people, how society, can strive to be better. Despite this, I would not deem Dr. Strangelove as nihilistic nor fatalistic, because it doesn't feel like it's aligned with negativity or a dismal perspective. It feels cathartic, almost celebratory. The film provided a new perspective, a fresh lens through which the world could be viewed. Throw your hands up and say, eh, if it happens, it happens. What are you going to do? Dr. Strangelove encouraged people to cast off the constrictive fears of their brittle survival, and embrace the absurdity of the Cold War, the absurdity of paranoid society, the absurdity of total nuclear annihilation. Why? Well, to be perfectly honest, because the people were virtually powerless to do anything but that. The biting comedy of Dr. Strangelove 
was so resonant to national affairs, it even directly influenced real-world politics. Federal agencies were instigated to examine the film, as well as its seriously-minded source material and counterpart, Peter George's novel Red Alert. Consequently, in the mid-1960s, American nuclear protocol was amended so that the launch of a nuclear weapon required multiple pieces of code distributed across several individuals. This change was made to avoid a launch by a single rogue individual, as seen in the film. The government even went one step further the following decade and installed fail-safe recall switches that would disarm warheads deployed without proper authorization. And just for a fun fact, it is said that soon after Ronald Reagan's presidential inauguration in 1981, he asked his chief of staff to tour him around the war room at the Pentagon. You know, the one he had seen in Dr. Strangelove. Little did he know that no such room actually existed, and yet the production design of that legendary set in the film inspired the design of real-world international roundtables and strategy rooms. Funny how modern leaders embraced the setting that housed such satirical absurdity of government policy. And how absurd could these policies be? I think we ought to look at this from a military point of view. I mean, uh, supposing the Ruskies stashed away some big bomb, see, and we didn't. When they come out in a hundred years, they could take over. I agree, Mr. President. In fact, they might even try an immediate sneak attack so they could take over our mineshaft space. Yeah, I think it'd be extremely naive of us, Mr. President, to, uh, to imagine that these new developments are going to cause any change in Soviet expansionist policy. I mean, we must be increasingly on the alert to prevent them from taking over other mineshaft space in order to breed more prodigiously than we do, thus knocking us out through superior numbers when we emerge. Mr. President, we must not allow a mineshaft gap. A mineshaft gap. While life on Earth nears its end, General Turgidson, a crazed nationalist to his dying breath, obsessively presses President Muffley to adopt Strangelove's astonishingly good idea of moving several hundreds of thousands of American citizens into mineshaft bunkers to shield them from the apocalyptic weapons. And he goes even further with his paranoia by suggesting the American survivors maintain a mineshaft race with the Soviets, even in a post-nuclear Cold War environment. It's perpetuating madness. As it turns out, Turgidson's paranoid suspicion of the Russian ambassador eventually turns out to be humorously justified, whose underlying motive really is to spy on the war room's strategies. Dr. Strangelove rises from his wheelchair, and staggers forward, roused by the idea of mass extermination of the two global superpowers and the world population. This mad, strategic scientist bears evil tendencies, but it's hard to distinguish whether his physical regaining of strength is a sign of a fascist regime regaining its basic footing or a sign of the only genuine hopefulness we see in the entirety of the film. Invigorated, he exclaims, And with that, humanity is decimated in a mesmerizing chain 
of mushroom clouds, but it's carousingly joyous. Reflecting on the legacy of Dr. Strangelove and the threat nuclear weapons still pose to the preservation of life on Earth, Roger Ebert stated quite candidly, quote, Once you push this button, you can't unpush it, and it's too big of a button to ever be pushed. End quote. Of course, we can infer that the film is a broad warning against nuclear weaponry, but it's nearly undeniable that there was a deeper layer of intentions for the film's parting impression. Why did Kubrick decide to juxtapose a positively hopeful tone brought about by Strangelove's rejuvenation and the music selection paired with the atomic imagery with the end of life on Earth? What exactly was his point? Could it be a form of dark optimism in that while Armageddon destroys humanity, that also includes the evils and shortcomings of humanity? I tend to think otherwise, judging by the warmly heartfelt music selection. It's clear Kubrick believed that humanity's very existence walked on a thin tightrope so it's certainly possible the film's ending was his way of saying that even if the world goes up in nuclear fire, we had a good run. It's also possible that Kubrick himself wished for the viewer to embrace the absurdity of hopefulness, that while the clouds may darken, even to the point of completely shrouding the earth, one should still strive to look for the light. There's beauty in both these possibilities, and that beauty lingers with the viewer well after the film concludes. Regardless of how the message resonates with you, there is one implication imparted to you that should be universally recognized, a meaning that serves as a warning that solely serves to benefit the well-being of humankind. Significance that the film wishes you to take to heart as you progress through the great game that is life. And that is, always, always remember to ensure the preservation with the utmost urgency, the pure sanctity of our precious bodily fluids. Again, don't know where, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. And that brings another episode to a close. In two weeks, we'll jump ahead about a decade and examine a film that was far ahead of its time in its approach to the humanizing cinematic portrayal of a character who gave a voice to the LGBTQ community. Directed by Sidney Lumet, screenplay by Frank Pearson, it's the 1975 crime drama Dog Day Afternoon. It's raw, powerful, and makes one think twice about the lengths to which they might go if forced into mental and social desperation. 
like Dr. Strangelove, it's one of those films that sticks with you, only this time in a much different way. Once again, the podcast is fully available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, and Stitcher. If you liked this episode, please subscribe on your platform of choice and pass the word along to those who might also be interested. Great reviews are very much appreciated, and if you'd like to peek ahead at the episodes to come, check the website for a larger view of the upcoming slate. That's at coffeeaftercredits.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Jay Shankweiler, and thanks for joining me for Coffee After Credits.